Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Holy Ordinary. My name is Laura Kelly, I'm your host, and in this episode I have interviewed Dr. Drew Hart, um, and we talked about, among other things, the relationship between white supremacy and the church and Christianity. Um, it's a really good conversation, and I'm honored to be able to feature this episode on Holy Ordinary. I think it's something that will hopefully start dialogue about this issue um, there was a little bit of issue with the audio, particularly later in the video, but I thought that this was too important to not include as an episode, regardless of those audio issues. So um, just bear with, and here's Dr. Drew Hart. Hey, I'm Drew Hart. I'm an assistant professor of theology at Messiah College, I'm the author of Two books now, actually. The first one is Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, which came out in 2016. And a new book that is coming September 1st called Who Will Be a Witness? Um, question mark. And then the <laughs> subtitle is Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. And I'm also a co-host of a podcast called Inverse Podcast, which I co-host with a friend from Australia, Jared McKenna, my good uh co-conspirator in Christ and um, troublemaker. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, do stuff around scripture and justice and stuff like that. Is that available on all Spotify and everything? Yeah, yeah. It should be okay. available at anywhere podcasts are found. Perfect. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I didn't know you co-hosted a podcast. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm actually in the, so this is season three of Inverse, but okay. I am new. So this was Jared's project before, okay. and then he invited me in for season three. So it's not been that long that I've been doing this. That's awesome. So is it just like you guys go through scripture and... Um... So we, we invited guests. We, we do a kind of interesting thing where we kind of dialogue with guests around their own story and biography okay. and how they've come to encounter scriptures. Mm -hmm. Has it been a liberating thing? Has it been an oppressive thing? Has it upheld the status quo in terms of how it was taught how was it justice oriented right, right and just allow yeah. their own story and then after we've kind of worked through their story and their hermeneutics for engaging the story then we actually invite them to kind of walk us through a text to oh, kind of give wow. an example of that right no so it's really kind of a yeah. yeah it's kind of a neat way to kind of um, yeah. they get to think about the text ahead of time oh so, yeah right um and so yeah it's just a beautiful Personal story, scripture, yeah. liberative readings. That's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, it's been it's been kind of neat. It's a really cool guest, not even always Christian. So we've had like yeah. Muslims and Sikhs and a yeah. whole range of folks engaging yeah. uh, scriptures and just kind of how they engage and interpret these texts. It's been that sounds so exciting, dude. Yeah. That's awesome. I'll definitely have to check that out. Everybody listening to this should really check that out because that's kind of the goal of this too is not to strictly be confined to um only a christian view but like incorporating what does this mean for other spiritualities and how christians interact with other spiritualities as well yeah so, yeah um well kind of going uh back in your life um i know that you were kind of loosely identified as an anabaptist and so i'd really appreciate if you could just talk about how anabaptists um, theological distinctives have shaped your personal narrative, your story, and your approach to the world and Christianity, as well as Black theology. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, it, you kind of brought, I was going to say um, that it's not just Anabaptism, I'm, I'm this hybrid, right, right, of things. And so 
I grew up in a black church. In fact, I didn't, I had never even heard of Anabaptism until I went to college. It was the very first time. And I think probably like many people, I was like, anti-Baptist, like what's wrong with the Baptist? You know what? You know, um, and so I didn't really know until um, college what that was and kind of learned a little bit about the history. And then I actually um, was exposed, uh, was a youth pastor at a Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, which was Anabaptist multiracial church in the city. And so kind of a part of an Anabaptist community um, for four years before coming back to Philly. And then when I moved back to Philly, back at a black church, but I started connecting to um, the Anabaptist world in Philadelphia, which I always tell people is like the coolest Anabaptist world. Like, right. if you want to know cool Anabaptists come to Philly. Yeah. Um, because it's not just like what most people think of in terms of like white Anabaptists, whether it be, right. you know, from the denominations, um, Mennonite Church of Brethren, Brethren in Christ, right. or white neo-Anabaptists, you know, so yeah. some popular, you yeah. know, um, pa- this is, Yeah, isn't there like a, um, a community, like a communal outreach program in inner Philadelphia? I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it's, I think it's Anabaptist too, and it's definitely far different than what people picture of like the horse and buggy rolling down the road, you know? Right, but not even just, so I don't know if you're thinking of Simple Way maybe, with like yeah. Shane, is that what you're thinking of? I think yeah. so. But I'm thinking even like, there are like, third generation black Mennonite congregations, right. Teenex communities. Um, the largest Anabaptist congregation of Philly is um, primarily, um, what is it? Indonesian, right? Oh, really? With other Asian <laughs> immigrant groups also a part of it in South Philly. Um, there are, there's a, a Anabaptist church, um, black and brown community with like, I think it's close to like 75% of its members are returning citizens from prison, you know, like that's awesome. Just, just a yeah. whole range. There's just a lot of really cool stuff happening. Outreach, People, yeah. Anabaptists engaging in organizing work, community development, all kinds of stuff anyway. Yeah. So, um, so like for me, when I um, moved back to Philly um, and even before I got to know all of that, it, it, I kind of had realized that, you know, the Anabaptist like influences had, had begun to shape me. Because mm-hmm. I didn't call myself Anabaptist while I was in college. Right. I didn't call myself Anabaptist when I was the youth pastor at Harrisburg <laughs> Brethren in right. Christ. Like yeah. I didn't, I, it wasn't until I left it that I was like, "Oh, these damn Anabaptists messed me up a little bit." <laughs> um, and so, so it I began me. to call myself Anabaptist for the very first time when I was outside of that community, um, just to kind of give recognition that it had shaped me some, right? And then, um, and then began to connect with this really, really cool Anabaptist community in Philly and the, all the different expressions of Anabaptism that look very different than the kind of traditional or neo-Anabaptist forms that um, many people know of. And so, yeah, um, so Anabaptism for me, um, at the very, very heart of it, I often say it's about taking Jesus seriously, right? Um, like that really gets, I think, the heart of it. Um, there's also um, ways in which um, the communal aspects, the anti-Christendom, um, aspects of it that I think were really important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, like, and this is not ways that I think are often emphasized by many white Anabaptists, but for me, when I learn about the history and think about 16th century Anabaptists and even like their relationship to like the poor peasant rebellions that are taking place right mm-hmm. at that time, mm-hmm. there's, there's some synergy there yeah. um, in terms of um, what's happening, these uprisings that are taking place. 
um, that I think are not often described. That's maybe not as much of a concern, right? right. For um, maybe a lot of white Anabaptists today, but for black people um, in particular, I think that it has a lot of resonance that there's this uh, community that emerges and that is articulating some of the same concerns. When you look at Michael Sattler's concerns and compare it to the poor peasant rebellion, there's actually some overlap. Oh yeah. Interests and concerns that they have. And so, Absolutely. Um, so I think that that is um, really powerful. And so, yeah, the communal, the economics, right. All of that. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. really um, revolutionary when you think about some of the implications that the, 16th century movement was having. And then to think about Anabaptism, if it's like a renewal movement um, for the church, um, that nobody gets to own a renewal movement, right? And so it's not having the right last name or anything like that. You don't get to, and so, um, and so, which is why I really believe that what's happening in Philly in particular is really powerful precisely because maybe that might be some of the better ways to see what does it mean to be Anabaptist in the world today, right? Not, and it's not a knock on the mega church neo Baptist pastors or the you know, the Yoders and the Millers and all of those folks. I'm not knocking them. They're I'm friends with all of them, honestly. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also want to push them um, that they are not at the center of God's renewal in the world. And, and and it's precisely at that point where we want to keep track of uh, those who are oppressed and vulnerable in our society who are yeah. participating in what God is doing and. And maybe that that might be the unveiling the window to open up to see maybe uh, the deeper significance for this moment. And I'll just add yeah. one more thing to that, which is so in the 70s, um, there was a guy by the name of Hubert Brown, and he wrote a book called Black and Mennonite. He was a, a black Mennonite pastor, um, and he's grappling with his experience with the Mennonite church and also like the black power movement that's unfolding in that moment. And, and one of the arguments, which I love, is he kind of, in some ways, suggests that the Mennonites have lost their Anabaptism, right? That they mm-hmm. don't, or they're, that they're not in continuity with what Anabaptists were. Yeah. And so, therefore, he, his thing is, if you want to get it back, um, then they need to actually anchor themselves in this, like, Black uh, power movement that's unfolding and Black theology. Um, and it's precisely... Um, by doing that, that they'll have something more in in similarity with the 16th century movement than they do today. And so it's kind of a really creative way of thinking through um, the way that Mennonites too often and Church of Brethren too often is about last names and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, losing sight of the meaning of their own traditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so here's mm-hmm. an opportunity for renewal precisely by re-finding uh, solidarity with those who are oppressed in our society today who are also following Jesus on the ground. Um, and so for me, Anablacktivism is this creative um, um, process of bringing Anabaptism, Black theology, activism, all these things together, um, embodying that, living that, right? Um, it's not just uh, hypothetical theologies in our head, but, but we seek to live that out in our actual lives. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting I, I have never heard of this book before that you mentioned by um, Hubert, Hubert Brown. Brown. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I've done a lot of research about um, the Anabaptist movements in the 15th and 16th century in Europe. And at the same time, you know, if you look at the timeline in conjunction with uh, what was going on with European colonization of Africa and right. even South America, right. um, like it's kind of interesting that Anabaptism and its relationship to Catholicism, you know, those European powers and the relationship that 
those people of color had with the Catholic Europeans coming in. It's weird that, you know, these two groups haven't really merged until, I guess, you know, more like the 70s, 80s, um, because they really do have mirror stories. I've honestly never thought about it like that before. Um, so there, and there, there are actually some interesting points before that. Um, so let's see. In 16, what is that? 80, so Mennonites um, come to German, uh, Germantown, Philadelphia in 1683, 1688. And it's, it's really a Mennonite Quaker hybrid group. It's right. really complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. Some people get, oh, they're Quakers. Oh, they're it's mm-hmm. complicated. So I, I think the best way to describe it, it's a hybrid. It really is mm-hmm. a hybrid of those two traditions together. Um, but anyway, um, but in 1688, this group, that have this hybrid kind of faith of Mennonite and Quakerism um, actually write the very first anti-slavery petition in the United States. Um, And so that's really interesting. And and what's fascinating about them writing this at that time is number one, that's not a very popular thing in 1688. Abolitionism doesn't really gain traction too much later. And if you know either of those movements, Quakers are not known for being abolitionists that early, right? It's much later, um, moving more towards the revolutionary period, that they become more radical abolitionists um, overall. And Mennonites, while they are known for um, not practicing slavery in their own communities for the most part, right, they are not very vocal about it. They're quite Yeah, because they're so like, we're just going to stay in our own corner. We've been bashed on before. We're not trying to step on any toes. Right. So I, I always suggest that it's actually somehow... The, the two together that are capable in that early moment yeah. of actually speaking out against slavery and trying to convince others to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's it. There's some other stories that I could get into, but there's other interesting stories along the way throughout the centuries um, where there's some yeah really cool things that are happening. Um, the other thing that maybe kind of relates to that story is that, which is not well known, but that some Anabaptists were technically enslaved mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, now it wouldn't have been like perpetual slavery, like black people were, but I think the awareness of that, I do wonder to what degree also their experience of, uh, persecution under Christendom, but then even slavery, if that was fresh off their mind as they're coming to the States and slavery is emerging in the colonies. Anyway, yeah. interesting things that I think, um, maybe helped to bring some awareness though, to be fair, Many white Mennonites um, and brethren, you know, they were very quietist and in some ways then very selfish, right? In terms of not for themselves and not for the well-being yeah. of others in the way that I think their faith would have called them to. And uh, I think the early 16th century movement were war- way more radical than what um, North American Anabaptism tended to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of branching right off of that, actually, um, how would you say that the wider church, um, you know, the wider Christian scene has been affected by uh, white supremacy throughout history and then up to today even. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you think about it from a church history standpoint, um, like you can't separate white supremacy from the history of Western Christianity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the way I often say it, so if like, the history of Christendom, like, you know, the church is more marginal in the first few centuries of Constantine, and it begins to centralize and, and get imperial benefits. And then over the next several centuries, you see it growing into 
truly a truly like Christendom or Christian, I call it Christian supremacy over society, right? That mm-hmm. is manifested. That culminates in like the um, crusades and all that. And actually during crusades, which actually has something to do with colonialism is there's papal bulls that are being written. Um, like I think one was um, Terranellius, like this empty land idea that's actually during the crusades first mm-hmm. that um, imagines non-Christian lands as therefore empty lands, right? right. Um, now, this is being used against Muslims at this point, mm-hmm. um, but that will easily transfer just a couple centuries later, right, in the 15th century for the Spanish and the Portuguese mm-hmm. in terms of non-Christian, as in other papal bulls are also written to right. even further get permission to enslave and plunder and to, you know, devastate and take conquer lands for Christ, Right. Um, and it's in those moments that Christian supremacy then begins to morph and mutate into white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if you read like early, because what, what I try to remind people is that there's a time like where Europeans would not have considered themselves white. That's like a very modern idea, right? They didn't see themselves as all together as one group. In fact, got a 30-year war going on, all these things. Right, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're not one block. Yeah. It's just yeah. white people. Um, and so... As the idea of white comes up, it's actually this idea of Western European Christian. Like those words are almost synonymous with one another. Mm -hmm. To say white is to say Christian. To say Christian is to say white in this distorted imagination in this historical Mm -hmm. moment. And so um, there's no question that white supremacy, I mean, it is squarely and centrally a Christian problem. It's a distorted Mm -hmm. Christian doctrine Mm -hmm. that developed. Clearly God's creation where everyone is equal was not good enough. And so... Let's let, uh, just create a new hierarchy in which white people can lord over others, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, um, so racism, white supremacy, um, these are not things like sometimes um, even Christians who are well-meaning want to be anti-racist now, like, like oh, the church, you know, we got to challenge our society. Like, eh. The church didn't like get drugged into this, like the church drugged the society into this. Right. right? And the so church think, needs to repair its own damage. Right. Right. Yeah. And they got to own it and confess it first that right. that was even the stake. And then they have the capacity then to hopefully set things right to make um, what they, the wrongs that they made right. And so I think that that's a very different posture that the church has to grapple with. And I think when we begin to realize not even just on the U.S. level, but just the global devastation that came out of colonialism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, people's entire ways of life are have been devastated and can, there's no going back. Oh, right? absolutely. There's yeah, no especially indigenous. Right. Even. And so and so when we think about that, um, it's it's enormous, the gravity of the of the suffering that has gone on in response to not all of the church, but large portions of the church that very few um, were very few weren't directly involved in in creating it, and certainly all of the church is complicit in its aftermath um, and have to grapple with its implications for its own life internally, but also how we you know live faithfully in society in the public square. So, what would you say that posture change, that posture shift within the church looks like? practically um the posture change that they need to undergo you're asking yeah so i think number one i think that they need to name white supremacy as an idolatry and a blasphemy against jesus and god right (laughs) right um it 
it's antichrist, literally. Mm -hmm. Like it is antichrist. Um, and then it needs to, um, in humility, in listening to the oppressed and beginning to see the world anew, it like needs to literally be reborn because mm -hmm. everything's been shaped and bathed in white supremacy. Like literally Jesus literally had to be like converted and colonized into a whitened person, right? right. Like it's just baffling mm -hmm. and not just in terms of how Jesus looks. Like I know people talk right now about the white and Jesus in terms of taking but it goes even further than that in terms of how we even understand Jesus' relationship in society has been mm -hmm. colonized. So that mm -hmm. now Jesus has become like a mascot for the status quo and, and social domination, right? Um, that he's, he's I mean, the, the famous image of the head of Christ where Jesus is like looking up, gazing at the sky with his blonde hair and blue eyes. And he's yeah. so Gentile, genteel right. and sedate and so kind, right? And, and this Jesus seems to not be bothered by slavery and oppression and lynching and mass incarceration and over-militarization of our, you know, just, it just crazy inequities, poverty, that those things, they don't bother him anymore. Right. Um, because we just, the bigger issue in the midst of this is how are we civil and nice to one another? Right. That that is really what needs to happen. You just remain nice and civil to one another. We've got to be able to smile through it all. Don't cause a ruckus around these things. Um, we can't be condemning people for these kind of actions. And so, um, and so Jesus literally is domesticated because he looks nothing like, or acts nothing like, thinks nothing like the Jesus that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, there's just this huge differentiation between the Jesus that stands, this figure that stands over the status quo and smiles at the most powerful and wealthy and, and gives them a high five versus the Jesus that was literally crucified under those powers, right? Um, that, that saw his own cousin um, executed by those in power, um, that saw his community exploited and taxed by the Roman governments, humiliated over and over again um, by the fact that Jesus is not the only one crucified in the first century, but that there are thousands and thousands of Jews that are crucified under uh, Roman uh, um, empire. And so, yeah, I think that... Um, everything our worship then that it, like our worship our discipleship how we gather our commitments our values everything needs to go and needs to be reborn um mm -hmm. literally um and so we need to um reflect on like what is god's kingdom actually all about you know right. um and it's what's fascinating about that is like i was in fact saying the other day to someone again um everyone got all upset because that one pastor during, I don't know if you saw the whole thing, the conversation on race and one pastor didn't want to say white privilege. So he said white blessings. I don't know if you caught that. Or I not. did not know. He was talking about slavery and the things and he didn't want to, I think he was trying to not offend his white Christian audience. So instead of saying mm. um, white privilege, he said, we could call it white blessings. Right. And of course, so everyone was really upset with him, which yeah. fine. That's fine. Right. Mm -hmm. It was, it was ridiculous. Right. But in some ways, what it was fascinating to me is, is that he's actually using it very consistently with how mainstream Christianity used the word blessings anyway, right? Yeah. That, that, that blessings have been all the things that white people have got, all the wealth, the, the new car, the jobs. All, and, and it's exactly opposite of how Jesus describes blessings, right? right? Those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. um, those are people who are blessed and, and give us a window into the kingdom of God. And so um, it's interesting that, I mean, he just made the mistake of calling it white blessings, 
because <laughs> he didn't want to say white privilege. Right. Um, but in some ways, what he actually said was mainstream Christianity. Yeah. Um, and so again, everything has been affected, I think, theologically yeah. um, by white supremacy and the history of white supremacy. And so um, the, the church needs to begin again. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. yeah. Starting, it sounds like starting at the grassroots, even with language and yeah. language reformation, um, which I think st- I agree with you. I think that's definitely really important because that totally shapes the way that we conduct our beliefs is, you know, goes back to what language are we using and how are we gathering? How are we forming ourselves? And when we start to form ourselves around the quote ragtag people, that's when you know you're headed in the right direction, you know? Um, so kind of moving forward, um, expanding off of uh, just race and Christianity um, I would really appreciate if you would talk specifically about the interaction of race with our current cultural climate, um, specifically with the Black Lives Matter events of the past few weeks, and kind of as a follow-up, um, the relationship of religious nationalism to all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, right now, I mean, we're in an interesting moment. Um, we're in an interesting moment because more white people in America are responding right now to racism than at any other point in our history, right? Um, I'm not overly optimistic about that because um, I'm not sure how much depth there is to some of the responses, but but there is at least a willingness to speak up, to go to rallies and things. Literally, the New York Times bestseller list was all anti-racism books. My book, Trouble I've Seen, got sold out a couple of times. It was, you know... um, so, like, there's something happening in our moments. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure how sustained it's going to be. I'm not convinced that the majority of people are in it for the long haul, right? Mm-hmm. But there's something happening. And so I don't want to dismiss either way. Right. Um, so I'm curious when the whirlwind is over, yeah. who will be left, right, in terms yeah. of committed to doing the work ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be interesting to see and how long um, the movement will continue um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. We could say more on that, but, but yeah. as far as religious nationalism goes, um, I mean, that's again, because the history of Christendom, like I said before, um, like religious nationalism has always played a significant role in racism in our society today. Um, because white supremacy is not just a social problem. It's a theological problem. Um, it always has been. And so, um, it's no surprise to see, you know, Donald Trump um, holding the Bible awkwardly like he never held one before <laughs> to take a photo op in front of the church right? Right. to, to yeah. kind of um, placate his, his uh, conservative evangelical base that he has. Um, like, that's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the story of America, right? right. Religious nationalism has always been one of the, dynamics that have been in play um, that we've had to kind of keep an eye on and, and it's had its waves of ups and downs and and I think there's some backlash happening right now in response to pushbacks against racism and so all these things are factors that shape um, the culture of American life and mm-hmm. if we're not aware of the role that religious national religious nationalism plays then we'll miss the ways in which Christianity in particular, um, in this land, um, the ways that it 
is distorted in such a way that it it tries to coerce our society, right? A top-down Christianity mm-hmm. imposing its its perception of what Christianity ought to be onto everyone, including people who don't claim to be Christian at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a really dangerous aspect to that. Um, and, and so the language, when we hear, you know, the make America great again, um, that, that always has racial and religious overtones given the struggles that our nation has been in, right? Um, every, all of the greatest struggles that our nation has undergone have always involved race and religion. Like mm-hmm. it's always been, dyna- you know, mm-hmm. um, the biggest wars and, and shifts that our country have undergone, they've been issues around race. And religion has always been a part of that. And even the civil rights movement, you could argue, was a clash of two different Christianities at the heart of it. I mean, certainly were other people groups involved, too. But at the heart of it was two very different interpretations of what it means to be Christian. Right. Right. Um, Dr. King and the SCLC certainly, um, uh, uh, I would say, certainly much closer looking to the way of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and taking those things very seriously comes out in his sermons and his talks. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have another Christianity that um, that's Jesus is okay with domination and exploitation Mm -hmm. and injustice. Um, So long as people have, you know, they've said their prayer and they somehow know that no matter what they do, they're going to heaven. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. the formula. Um, And, but it's okay to, to have, distorted uh they wouldn't call it distorted they would just say you know ordering society in the way it ought to be right um and so law and order um christianity has been something that we've seen quite a bit and law and order christianity is the same thing in terms of response to undocumented folks right not just black folk when, when black people talk about um we're being uh killed uh in, in, in ways that are sanctioned by the society by the state um, Christians respond, some white Christians respond by saying, um, you know, oh, law and order, we need tougher law and order. Like that's the, literally the response, right? And, and they side, the blue lives matter, right? Um, mm-hmm. so it's siding with the state, literally, mm-hmm. in these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but the same thing with undocumented people, um, you know, oh, it's, it's illegal what they're doing, right? That's the reason. So they're siding with the law and order, with the state, uh, and it's it's a really strange thing to do, I think, as Christians to be siding with the state um, against those who are oppressed rather than asking questions like, is it a just law? Is it a righteous law? Is this a kind of law that God desires for society? Um, we just, I mean, Harriet Tubman, right? Then then we've got a problem with her. We got a problem with Frederick Douglass. We got a problem with Martin Luther King. We got all the people that white mainstream Americans like to every now and then throw up and, mm-hmm. and praise, mm-hmm. um, they actually don't work in that paradigm because their first question is not to fall in line with the state and to sanction it as though everything the state does is divine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a way in which um, religious nationalism animates itself by being very selective around scriptural interpretation. And so everyone loves Romans 13, right? Or a portion of Romans 13. They don't like to read the whole thing but they like a portion of Romans 13, but then um, they ignore so much other biblical texts that don't fly with that, right? I mean, um, David in the lion's den, you know, um, in fact, the, the, the boys getting thrown into the, um, the fiery furnace, um, 
you got Jesus himself. I talk about in, in trouble I've seen in terms of calling Herod a fox, right? Um, you have Revelation 13. Um, it's just a devastating critique, right? Yeah. Uh, Revelation 13 and 18, both of those chapters, just devastating critiques on empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very selective um, to just, oh, what about uh, Romans 13? Please read the whole chapter. If you go, in fact, start at chapter 12 and then right. read all the way through. Um, and then all of a sudden we've got something more radical happening in that text. But but even beyond that, like we've got to understand, like Paul himself was killed by, under Rome, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus was killed under Rome. Most of the apostles mm-hmm. were killed under Rome. Uh, Christians for the first several centuries they had some moments of persecution under Rome. And so um, it's very silly to just have this kind of law and order, blessed is the state, no matter what kind of response, mm-hmm. um, because the state is the one that kills Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. Um, um, God's son. And so that should be the, the lens through which we read critically our society. And then we should have some wisdom to discern how is the state acting at any given moment. Um, and so there might be times where Romans 13 makes a little bit more sense, again, within the broader passage, but, but it might make a little more sense to think about it in that way. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there's other times in which it's a blasphemous, you know, idolatrous empire, like in Revelation. And so I think that um, we've got to have a little bit more uh, discernment in terms of how we use these texts um, thoughtfully and uh, discerningly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, earlier, you mentioned kind of the whirlwind dying down and being skeptical about how many people will still be there after that happens. And I think it's begun to happen. I think the number of protests and or at least media coverage of it has certainly declined. Um, so what advice, suggestions do you have for young people in general, or especially young Christians, for staying involved after the Blackout Tuesday on Instagram, after the protesting, common protesting declines? Yeah, I think, um, I guess I would say, like, that I would encourage folks to to think about their minds and their bodies, right? Their minds to keep unlearning and relearning, right? I mean, some books like Trouble I've Seen and there's so many others uh, to be engaged. And, and, and I say this in, in the sense of also, like it's tempting to just like read one person and be like, mm-hmm. all right, now I'm an expert on racism, right? <laughs> um, and I think our current climate in particular is leaning towards that. Like mm-hmm. there's like, new, very famous people that are like, you know, so like Kendi and D'Angelo, like that's everyone, everyone's talking about that. But there's been people who've been like writing about this for like decades, literally. Right. Mm-hmm. And in a whole variety of different perspectives, um, a lot that help each other. It's not like they're all warring against each other, but but they're not all coming at it the same way. And so I think like if someone were to just read Kendi, mm-hmm. like that actually worries me if someone only reads Kendi. Right. Um, you can start with Kendi, but then read and understand these nuances. And actually, it'll actually help people have a better analysis mm-hmm. in understanding what's happening in our society. Um, so, I, so even with mine, like, I, I think my book in particular is more than just racial theory. It's also trying to frame discipleship to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And what it means to be Christians in the midst of a racist society. But even my book, I would hope that people wouldn't just stop there, but read and engage a whole variety of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll begin to see the nuances and the differences and why people are saying it this way or that way. Um, and so, yeah, our minds are learning and unlearning. And that also includes history, right? There's just so much history that people don't understand. I know as a professor, 
Um, I teach one course outside of my department. It's for a first year seminar course. And so we can do, do like any topic we want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I teach a course called um, The Politics of Blackness. And it's like black history and intellectual thought, a little theology in there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and over and over again, when students are done, they'll always say, especially in talking about the history, that they feel like they've been lied to because mm-hmm. And it's like 20th century history that's blowing their mind. Yeah. Right? It's not even like yeah. slavery. This is like right. 20th century history. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is, they thought it was all about, you know, black people sitting at the back of the bus and water fountains. And that was the thing. And they missed, like, that was like the fringe of what was happening. Like the white supremacy, the the convict leasing systems, the sharecroppings, mm-hmm. the chain gangs, the peonage, all that neo-slavery stuff, the lynchings, mm-hmm. the racial terrorism, mm-hmm. the controlling of people's bodies, the disenfranchisement, the ways that law and policy contributed to that at every mm-hmm. level, local, state, national law, right? I mean, like, they miss all of that because they've been taught in their own public education systems, as well as the narratives that the communities tell them, um, this very narrow story that somehow you know, it's a beautiful story. It wraps up somehow into American exceptionalism, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's how people want to tell him. They use Dr. King. They manipulate his story to talk about how great America is somehow. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so our minds, we've got to tell more truthful stories. We've got to renew our minds. We've got to read. We've got to understand. We've got to have some analysis of what's happening around us. Um, but then, like, I've seen, you know, um, white Christians, like there's some churches just on the culture, like they'll sit around and read books all day. Like, you know, so after they finish one book, what's the next book study, right? And that just, they're just perpetually reading books. Uh, and that's not healthy either to just stay there just reading and doing nothing else. And so um, the learning has got to also be combined with praxis, right? The ways that we actually live. Um, and so, and, and, and often like, it's not something to be done as lone rangers. You can't live faithfully by yourself. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like you got to do it with others. You yeah. have to do it with others. And so, um, whether it means a church that's already engaged or, or pulling some people together and saying, look, we're going to do this. We're going to be this kind of community together and hold each other accountable and encourage each other along the way. It's got to be done in community. Um, but we've got to join in with what's happening. Right. And so I think groups, I, deeply encourage folks to first thing is to figure out who's already doing work. If there's, you know, often there's folks already doing good work in the community. Mm-hmm. How do we join in with that work? How do we participate? How do white Christians in particular learn how to follow rather than trying to lead everything? Um, and I think that there's, yeah, really great opportunities for, um, for actually embodying. And that's where, that's where the real transformation happens, Right where you've got the theory and you're living it out and you can adapt and kind of learn on the fly and you adjust and you create new habits and new ways of being in the world, new ways of relating to others as you do the work. Um, That's really important. So it's easy. And this is, I'll push, but this is a pushback on Kenny's book. It's easy to just talk about racism as policy problems Mm -hmm. and not see uh, the need for our own transformation and the transformation of our communities and stuff. Right. And, um, and I'm not saying that he's saying that, but it hints at that by the way he defines racism as a policy policy centric way of doing so. And so, um, so I think that I think churches in particular, I mean, this fits well with churches, right? To, churches are basic Christian practices, confess your sins, repent, make amends, right? Set things right. Like these are basic Christian practices mm-hmm. um, that shouldn't be that revolutionary and then live that out um, in the world. And so, yeah. 
Um, just quickly as an aside, you know, talking about these are basic Christian practices, um, but given the long history of white supremacy's integration with Christianity or synonymity um, with Christianity, do you have anything to say to the non-Christian population um, about the Christian response and the Christian journey going forward as being gradual, slow, grassroots, anything like that? Well, first, I, I, I like to remind non-Christians that Christianity isn't defined by what white people do with it, right? That that's right. not the definition of Christianity. They don't get to have the last say or the final word or the more significant word on what Christianity is. And so um, I point people to, you know, my ancestors, you know, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells and mm -hmm. Fred Shuttlesworth and King and Ella Baker and others, right? But the, that, that they all bear witness to Christianity um, and I would say a more faithful view. And so I would just say, keep in mind um, that Christianity is not one thing and, and that there are other expressions and that these other communities, especially those folks that I just named, I mean, they were folks that collaborated deeply with, um, with non-Christians and folks from other religious traditions um, and in some ways have been at the heart of freedom and justice work in this country. In fact, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so it's easy, I think, to just dismiss Christianity based on how the ways that we've seen white Christians distort it. Um, but um, the strongest forces for justice were also Christians, right? Um, living on the underside of all of this. And so, um, yeah, I think, I, I guess I say that all as let's not denigrate Christianity when, um, Many of the folks who are non-Christian, who are committed to justice work, in many ways are still indirectly very influenced by the freedom struggles of the Black community. Um, and so we need to at least acknowledge that, I think. And I think that can create good opportunities for dialogue on the local level, for interfaith and non-faith participation in these uh, movements together, linking arms and solidarity on the ground at the grassroots level. Um, but with a mutual respect for um, where we're all coming from. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right. So I kind of want to shift gears here uh, into talking about multiracial churches, yeah. um, specifically given the history of white supremacy and the church. Um, yeah. So first of all, just what's the importance of having multiracial churches? Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm not the biggest advocate for multiracial. I'm not a, an opponent of it necessarily, but okay. I'm not an advocate for it either. Um, at least not as a starting point, not as a goal in and of itself. Um, because multiracial churches in and of itself don't necessarily mean that they've they're outside of white supremacy, the practice of white supremacy in the congregation, right? Absolutely. Um, so a multiracial church that is outside of that can be a really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that sometimes there's so much focus on the racial diversity of bodies um, and not emphasis on the subverting of the racial hierarchy of white supremacy itself, right? 
and, and exercising the community of anti-blackness and all that kind of its patterns, racist patterns, right? And it's life. Um, so for me, that's really where I actually want to point people towards as the starting points. And if you do that well, and in your context where uh, a multiracial uh, community is possible, it will happen, right? Um, if you take seriously the role that white supremacy has played in the life of the church, um, I believe that um, that that kind of possibility will people will seek it out, people will work towards it, and it will flourish. Um, but when we don't take that seriously, um, like the evidence, the scholarship suggests that that many, the majority of multiracial churches and multicultural churches actually operate out of what they call a white racial frame, right? Um, and so the white racial frame, um, black bodies can be up front and doing different things, yeah. but white theology and white practice and white norms mm-hmm. still define on that space and where the frame itself in terms of how people understand race and racism Mm -hmm. that black people actually are more likely to assimilate into the white racial frame in terms of how they describe racism and vice versa. Right. And so um, black wisdom and gifts and experiences are not being, are not shaping the life of the congregation often in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I say all that as someone who actually at the moment attends a multiracial church, Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's actually a, it's not the common experience of multiracial. Like most multiracial churches are white male led, mm-hmm. um, white dominant cultural shaped, and everything like that. Um, and oftentimes, socioeconomically, either everyone's on the same socioeconomics, or white people are in the higher socioeconomics with poorer black people. Like where there's mm-hmm. some hierarchy stuff happening there on class. Anyway. My church actually is, we have a black woman as the lead pastor um, and we're right in the hood and there's a mix of every, socioeconomically, both racially and um, race and class. There's just a whole mm-hmm. bunch of things happening that disrupt some of those kind of things from happening. Um, and so, yeah, so, and, uh, and that said, like, and even in that context, I see we're always fighting against white normativity kind of just trying to like pop up its ugly head over and over and over again and kind of kind of almost like what's it that Chuck E. Cheese game you're hitting the oh yeah the yeah. gophers um, yeah the gophers yeah, yeah knock them down like that mm-hmm. that's what it's like still right mm-hmm. even in that context um and so yeah I'm hesitant to overemphasize or oversell multiracial multicultural churches because I think oftentimes many of them are not accomplishing as much as they like to think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but when but when white supremacy has really been focused and dismantled, then something really beautiful can emerge out of those contexts. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, like, aspects of that uh, white structure of, of church kind of yeah. rearing its ugly head, even in a multiracial church. Yeah. Um, do you have, like, examples of that or, you know, how you see that playing out in purely yeah. white churches? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, we'll use it for a multiracial church. Cause I think this is oftentimes, well, again, the lead pastor more than likely than not is a white male. I'm not right. saying that a white male can't do a good job at that, but mm-hmm. often it seems mm-hmm. like white people are more to join a multiracial church where it's white leadership and less likely to join a multiracial church that's under black leadership. That's just stats, right? It's just interesting dynamic. Um, 
oftentimes there's power, decision-making power in play where people have a portion of power over decision-making that's the life of the congregation that church board or whoever, however the structures of the polity of the different churches, um, white power decision-making is often a reality. Um, you think about theology, right? So oftentimes Eurocentric white theology is normed in those spaces. Black theology is not um, a contributor into the conversation in those spaces. Um, worship music, right? Oftentimes um, worship music tends to um, not only in terms of the music itself, and this can vary a little bit more, maybe depending on the multicultural church, um, but even still, like, when you think about, like, what, like, real intentional theological perspectives are being taught through the worship, mm-hmm. um, they tend to align more with white evangelical than, you know, um, some of the traditions, the spirituals, and some of the deeper traditions of the Black church. Um yeah, I mean, I could go, uh, right, you think yeah. about even just leadership, one more, just leadership, right? Like who is, is seen to be qualified to be a leader in the church, right? Mm-hmm. What expectations of what a leader looks like? How is a leader supposed to act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the things are deeply culturally influenced and we don't recognize that. And so we norm white ways of being in terms of leadership. And we put that into resume, into qualifications and things mm-hmm. like that. And we people out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's um, it's it's a just one more way in which white supremacy um, just shapes congregations, including often um, multicultural and multiracial churches. Uh, do you have suggestions for especially Christians in the church tradition that was formed in Western Europe, like um, the Church of England or? the Episcopal Church, the Catholic Church, uh, as far as dismantling some of those uh, strictly white supremacy-influenced practices while perhaps not, like, completely abandoning their liturgy? Yeah, I mean, that's so tricky. Um, It's so tricky. Because I definitely agree. I think the, the structure of how you do something and who's at the front of the church and the way decisions are made have such an influence on the belief and thought and makeup of the congregation. But it is tricky when you have those longstanding church traditions, even Anabaptism, you know, has a pretty longstanding church tradition. And it's like balancing those two things, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at. Now, to be fair, the Catholic church looks very different in different spaces. Oh, absolutely. Um, Right. And so I think there's, some ways in which they have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, so I'll just play my cards and say like, you know, I'm not as high church in terms of like needing to preserve the specifics of traditions. And so mm-hmm. like, for me, like everything's like grabs. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, it's not necessarily that we need to trash everything, mm-hmm. but everything needs to be scrutinized to reflect and think about like, what work is it doing for us right now? Yeah. Um, so everything's on the table for conversation. Maybe that's a better right. way to say it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the church of England, I mean, I mean, certainly there's no question that it is a, in some ways an offspin of Catholicism and some practices and stuff, but I mean, it's deeply, deeply shaped by, the colonial experience. I mean, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply. And I, I think it has to grapple with it. And that's why, I mean, for me, like what matters more is like 
when a church goes that far off, like it needs to be reborn. Right. But I'm not like, it's hard for me to be so concerned about the practices and the rituals more than like how far it's gone off, the kind of devastation it has caused globally. And I have, I have deep, deep friends that are Episcopal and Anglican and all of that. So I don't say this like without recognizing like the weightiness of these traditions for folks and how much they value the liturgy and tradition. Um, but for me as a black man looking at it from just a historical standpoint, like I can't prior to prioritize that over um, the transformation, I think of the church in, in, in whatever it needs to do to get on track. Now it may not need to get rid of all of its traditions necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but it needs to go through with a, with a comb um, <laughs> and, and, and explore and figure out like right, mm-hmm. how, how could we go off so far? Right. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the church of England in particular, like that we forget about here in the United States is that it was at the turn of the 1700s, the, the beginning of the 18th century that, you have Anglican missionaries coming down, literally teaching um, enslavers and planters like how to raise their slaves right, right? like literally giving them instructions, theological mm-hmm. instructions on how to do it, and um, teaching them absolute obedience by right? coming down with because you know slaves obey your masters. I mean that's where that developed that idea, and so um, before that point, it was actually. Um, seen as taboo like they weren't sure if that's what like the initial response to um, enslaved Africans by the English was they didn't want to convert them because they thought it was incompatible to hold their own enslaved people as Christians that you couldn't do that and they also thought that it would make Christians bad slaves uppity and all hard to deal with right and no, 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 no. They get taught, no, there's a good way to do this, right? These are perfectly compatible. You just got to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry if I, you know, am not that worried about the traditions and practices <laughs> of the church in that sense. Um, again, not that it needs to just discard itself of everything. I don't think you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. But everything needs to be grappled with very seriously um, mm-hmm. because because it allowed for so much devastation. And I know people will say, well, all traditions were done. But the fact of the matter is not everybody was, the Anabaptists were not wholesale, just, I mean, and they have their own shortcomings because I critique Anabaptists too Mm -hmm. um, for their, um, for one, their silence in the midst of oppression, but also the ways in which they've assimilated into uh, white normativity over the years as well, right? And so they're not, their hands are not clean either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the idea that I might be so consumed with, I, I love, I'm very ecumenical in some ways, but I'm also very honest mm-hmm. in terms of just that those are not my priorities, mm-hmm. right? People are my priorities and the liberation of people are my priorities over than the rituals of the church, mm-hmm. especially not rituals that aren't necessarily tied to like core things to yeah. follow Jesus. Right. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, just kind of wrapping up here, is there any final advice or suggestions that you have for anybody, whether they're, uh, white people or people of color facing their position in the church in Christianity in this country? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I do really do believe that we need to take discipleship seriously. Like it's actually much more radical. Like it, once we break it from the idea, like when people hear discipleship, they hear like small groups or book studies, right? Like, like <laughs> right. another cell or something. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, no, like discipleship is about following Jesus. The Jesus we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jesus who says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, like that Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does it mean to follow that Jesus into the world and to commit to radical discipleship to that Jesus and to do that in community with others in a subversive way that, that challenges the status quo of our society because we've got a vision of God's dream for us. And I say us as in all of society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something much more beautiful where everyone can flourish, where everyone is safe, where the vulnerable and oppressed are prioritized. Um, like that's a beautiful dream that I think that we've got to take much more seriously and the way in which Jesus invites us to pursue and chase after that. Yeah. again you guys for joining us on this episode of holy ordinary um you can find us on instagram at holy ordinary please interact there um leave comments shoot me a dm um to continue this conversation otherwise we'll see you next episode